Hey, everyone. Want to read a Jane Austen book where if you put the protagonist in any other Jane Austen book, she would be the villain? Today's book is Emma by John Grisham. <laughs> I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic. And along with The Old Man and the Sea, this is my favorite book because both novels have to do with there being a lot of fish in the sea. <laughs> And with the protagonist nevertheless making grave errors. <laughs> and I'm David Vance, currently writing a two-year obsession with period pieces, after which I play basketball to overcompensate. In Emma, Jane Austen captures that universal human experience. Someone sets you up on a date and does a terrible job. And this is The Book Pile. All right, quick reminder to please rate and review the book pile. Uh, if you do, in the spirit of Emma, we will try to matchmake you with someone far above your station, causing you incredible pain. <laughs> that offer's valid through June 21st. We got a review from Mommy Clogger, which I'm assuming has to do with dancing and not a plumbing issue. <laughs> she says, not only am I passively getting smarter, I'm being actively entertained. Dave and Kellen are witty. I don't know why she mentions your name first. Uh, and they also are willing to read books that I'm not, which I appreciate. Given that it takes me about eight months to force myself to finish nonfiction, these guys have given me years of my life back. You'd think it would be quicker with the amount of time she spends on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and a little preview. Our next two books are The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and 1984, as we shift focus to our favorite topic, numbers. <laughs> The 1,984 Habits of Highly Effective. <laughs> All right, without further ado, here are our five favorite lessons from Emma. All right, lesson one. Smart arguments can move a story. So this doesn't mean just like an argument for argument's sake, but an argument that, that moves a story is one that's layered with personality, where things are revealed, you learn about people. It might even be where you can really start rooting for someone or feel their pain. Uh, to me, a good argument adds weight to words. And Emma is a heavy book. I'm going to put applause after that. <laughs> So I'm going to list off a few of the arguments in it, but my favorite one in the book is with Emma and Mr. Knightley. This is after Harriet turns down Mr. Martin because of Emma's persuasion. And because of this argument, you start to see through Emma's intentions and suspect that maybe it's less about matchmaking at this point and more that she just doesn't want to be wrong, <laughs> which sure. is something Dave has a hard time with too. <laughs> you start to see through Mr. Knightley. We also start to get a sense of his sort of underlying sentiment that Emma really is brilliant, just sometimes in the wrong way. I love it when he says, better to be without sense than to misapply it as you do. <laughs> Which is like saying, you're smart, just stop being dumb about it. Right. <laughs> I thought about that before, how usually only people with immense talent have the ability to ruin the world. <laughs> like if you're born with no brains and no talent, it's really hard to get in a position where you can really screw things over, with some exceptions. Right. It's like that saying, the best swimmers are oftenest drowned. <laughs> where it's like the people with enough capability to get themselves in trouble are the ones who like can really mess things up. Right. It's like if you started transforming the world with your electric cars, but then found out that you could also control the stock market with your dumb tweets. <laughs> So throughout the book, it's just 
full of arguments. Frank Churchill and Emma argue about Jane Fairfax's complexion. Hmm. This is during a dinner party, which we discover later is just a ruse from Frank to ward off any suspicion of his attraction or connection with Jane. And you guys can use this move too. If you don't want someone to suspect that you are secretly engaged to another person, just make fun of how pale that person looks. <laughs> I love this moment when when they're discussing Emma's drawing of Harriet. We get character traits from each person during this sort of argument, because after this portrait is revealed, the ever-honest Mr. Knightley says that Emma has drawn Harriet too tall. Mr. Elton says, no, it's the most perfect likeness he's ever seen. And then Emma's father says, but you've drawn her out of doors and it makes one think she'll catch cold. (laughs) (laughs) I love the hypochondriac character that Mr. Woodhouse Mm -hmm. is. I do feel like people who believe that modernity has made us too fragile have never encountered Mr. Woodhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So a few other sort of iconic examples of arguments. We have Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker arguing about Luke's parentage. Woody and Buzz with, uh, you are a toy and you're a sad, strange little man, which I think is a great thing to say to someone taller than you. (laughs) But I think two people arguing in a room can be just as adrenaline inducing as a car chase. And to me, a great example of a, a movie with a lot of both of those things is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana Jones argues with his father for most of the movie, and to me, that's what makes it so fun. Because you go from you know the chase and then the no-ticket scene where he pushes a guy out of a Zeppelin, and then it's followed by the two of them just eating dinner, arguing about whether or not Sean Connery was a good father. <laughs> I feel like part of the reason argument scenes done well can be so compelling is that obviously there's conflict baked into it, but it can also be such a powerful characterization moment because you're seeing what these two characters, one, you see what they both want, and two, you see what they both believe. So like you think of in The Incredibles, that argument between Bob and Helen, they both want different things where Bob wants his like free superhero life back and Helen wants him to be a good dad. (laughs) But you're also seeing what they both believe, which is like... Helen believes they're supposed to blend in now, and and Bob believes that if you're special, you're special, and we should stop trying to make everybody special. Greta's Little Women is great, where there are so many very pivotal scenes that just hinge on excellent arguments, whether it's arguments between Joe and Aunt March, or Joe and Friedrich, or Amy and Lori. Each time you see, okay, here's what each of these two characters wants, and here's what each of them believe. And I think stories that use kind of belief in ideology as a means of characterization can be so fascinating and colorful. You mentioned we get an idea of what people want. And so much of Emma and Jane Austen's novels are people sort of tiptoeing around each other, like walking Mm -hmm. on eggshells and just being characters of themselves because there were certain societal expectations for behavior. But once an argument is ignited, it's like a knife that just cuts through all of the BS. Sure. And arguments are sort of a reprieve, if anything, from all of the masquerading. And so it's the only time where you really see people being 100% honest with each other. Speaking of Jane Austen conflict... You ever notice that the title of Pride and Prejudice makes it sound like they were equally to blame? (laughs) It's like, yeah, you know, he was really mean, but then she said he was a mean person. So there's fault on both sides. (laughs) Yeah, it could have just been called... I misunderstood him. (laughs) I don't even think she misunderstood him. I think he was rude. She wasn't having it. And then he changed. (laughs) 
It's like she had all these preconceived notions about him. They were correct, but she still had him. (laughs) Okay, lesson two. Beware of confirmation bias. So throughout the book, once Emma believes something, almost nothing can change her mind. So she thinks Mr. Elton loves Harriet. She thinks Mr. Martin's not good enough. So basic takeaway, she has confirmation bias. We all have confirmation bias. So one thing Charles Darwin used to do, according to David Epstein, no relation, is he would write down anything he noticed that went against his existing beliefs. So he was just always attacking his own ideas to see where they were weak to the point where like literally only his fittest ideas survived. And I feel like Emma needs that kind of system. I feel like all of us need that kind of system for our own confirmation bias. So Darwin developed his evolutionary ideas with a thought process of a creationist. (laughs) But on top of worrying about confirmation bias in ourselves, I think we should honestly be worrying about it in the political sphere. Jonathan Hyde, I think, is the one who talks about how when you have two sides of the political aisle and they're actually debating with each other, like true debate and true discussion, no one may switch sides, but both sets of ideas grow stronger because they have to respond to the criticisms of the other. Mm. Whereas if they just never talk to each other, or if you have some kind of like one party authoritarian system, there's nothing that forces those ideas to get better. Have you ever heard the old Yakov Smirnov joke about the Soviet Union where he said, yeah, in Russia, we have freedom of speech, just like you Americans. The difference is here you have freedom after speech. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the confirmation bias thing is is the reason why Emma and Harriet's relationship, friendship is so toxic, (laughs) because Harriet is not there to debate anything at all. And then she reaps the, the, the consequences of someone who is, just has this unfiltered thought process. I love Harriet's willingness to just always believe Emma, no matter how many times Emma is wrong. <laughs> I hope my kids are that way. <laughs> oh, it's so hard as a parent to have nonstop kids just don't believe you. <laughs> Even when they're asking you questions. So it's like this constant battle to maintain your credibility. (laughs) How did you lose it? Just by having kids. It's just an automatic thing. It's like your credibility with a child is just constantly disintegrating, (laughs) like you're building a house as it's falling. And the worst blow to my credibility that I've had was in February of 2020, when my daughter is like... The teachers are saying that they might shut the school down for COVID. And I was like, that's not going to happen. (laughs) And then it totally did for 12 months. (laughs) All right. Lesson three, compelling doesn't have to mean likable. So I appreciate this feat of Jane Austen because I think the most common story told is of a main character who we like in the beginning, Harry Potter, Frodo Baggins, Batman, Ripley from Alien, someone who we already like who has a weakness that they eventually overcome and then we like them even more. Sure. But rarer is the story of someone who we don't like or we're not given a reason to like until they eventually overcome their obstacle but we still want to keep reading anyway. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure actually how it's accomplished. I just admire that Jane Austen has been able to do it. So here's here are a few things that Emma does 
when Harriet shows Emma a letter that Mr. Martin wrote, Emma says that it's well written, so his sisters probably helped him out. <laughs> Emma publicly insults the most innocent character in the story, Miss Bates. Later on behind her back, she calls Miss Bates an eternal talker, which I think <laughs> is such a great <laughs> burn. Uh, Emma is clearly a classist. At one point, when she's talking to Harriet about Mr. Martin's being a farmer, Emma says, a young farmer whether on horseback or on foot, is the very last sort of person to raise my curiosity. <laughs> I love at one point the narrator describes Emma as, she was not much deceived as to her own skill, either as an artist or a musician, but she was not unwilling to have others deceived. <laughs> And I know that a lot of people complained uh, that in the 2020 movie uh, that Emma seemed meaner or more of a jerk, but I think that, if anything, she evoked more of who she is in the book. There was a point in the 2020 movie with uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, actress as Emma, at one point when Miss Bates tells her the story that Miss Fairfax almost perished in a sailboat accident, Emma just sort of shrugs. <laughs> so Dave, I wanted to ask you, why is it do you think that we care to read about someone that we don't even like? I think it does help her case that Emma is pretty funny. Like uh, I've brought up before that Phoebe Waller-Bridge talks about with Fleabag how Fleabag is not always a very good person, but because she's so funny, we're very often with her. Mm. And that that whole section where Emma is trying to undermine Harriet's potential engagement to this man she's doing the worst thing she could do in that situation and i was laughing the whole time it was so funny to me and so i think you know how sometimes you have friends who aren't the best people but if they make funny jokes about not being the best people you a little bit forgive them you shouldn't but you do i feel like it's at least some degree of that that makes sense to me. House is one of my favorite TV shows of all time, and he's a horrible person, but uh -huh. I can't stop watching him. He's just so witty and mean, mm -hmm. like with his own patience. It's very entertaining. And he does the exact same thing in Sense and Sensibility that Hugh Laurie does. <laughs> yeah. But I don't, I don't feel like comedy fully answers the question. I'm trying to think about what it is because spoilers ahead for Gone Girl. But when you read Gone Girl... Amy is literally a murderous psychopath, but you're like with her for a lot of her plan. You know she's a terrible person, but for some reason, you're very interested in whether she succeeds or not. And I don't have a good answer for why. I don't either, because I used to think that you needed a reason to root for someone, but it's almost like you just need a reason to keep wanting to know their story. <laughs> Part of it might be that thing I've mentioned before from David Chase, the creator of Sopranos, where he essentially said, your protagonist can be a terrible person. They can be the most morally destitute person, but we will be with them as long as they are the smartest person in the room and good at their job. <laughs> and Emma kind of fits that bill where she's yes. always wittier than everyone around her. It's just she doesn't always use her powers for good. <laughs> she is kind of Walter White-esque in that sense, where like Walter White is this genius who uses his powers in the worst possible way. Walter White is another great example, because if anything, he's the opposite from the story pattern that I introduced this point with, in that at first you, you do root for him, but as the seasons go on, you like him less and less, sure. but you still want to know mm -hmm. his story. But he's also always hilarious, so that helps too. <laughs> Man, his uh, his acid prank. <laughs> oh, and you should hear his prison murder bit. <laughs> How do you murder 20 people in 20 seconds? <laughs> Practice. <laughs> 
So the takeaway here, like I said, I don't have it fully answered. But if you're writing a story and creating a protagonist, don't feel like he or she has to be nice. (laughs) All right. Lesson four. So I love getting good advice for something we've all experienced, and Jane Austen's great at that. So here it is. Use the Emma playbook when you need to break up your friend's engagement. So, like, I I can't tell you how many times I've looked at my unhappily married friend and been like, wish I'd read Emma. (laughs) So here's the story. Emma's best friend, Harriet, gets a proposal, Mr. Martin, who is a farmer. And Emma's like, no way is my best friend marrying a farmer. (laughs) So here's what she does. Harriet says, you know, Mr. Martin proposed, what should I do? And Emma breaks out step one in her playbook, plant doubt as to his intentions. So she's immediately like, wow, I guess he sure wants to social climb, huh? (laughs) So then there's step two, which is sneak in your opinion. So Harriet says, what do you think I should say? And Emma's like, oh, you haven't decided? I thought you were just asking the best way to say no. (laughs) And then she says, I mean, if a woman is even wondering if it's the right choice, she should say no, but I wouldn't dream of advising you. (laughs) And then she uses the last step, which is emotionally threaten. So Harriet's like, okay, maybe I should say no. And Emma's like, oh, good. That's absolutely the right choice. And also, if you had said yes, we couldn't have been friends anymore. It would have been very fitting. She could have given the the book a different title because there's Pride and Prejudice. There's Persuasion, (laughs) along with those sort of the alliteration of that. This could have easily been Passive Aggression. (laughs) I was curious why so many Jane Austen books have this same storyline where someone convinces their friend not to get married. So, you know, Emma and Harriet, Darcy and Bingley, Lady Russell and Anne, it just keeps recurring. And I'd never heard of Jane Austen's love interest, Tom Lafroy. Have you heard of him? No. Okay. So they met when she was 20 and they seem to have been in love. And in fact, he apparently admitted it when he was much older, but it looks like his family intervened and just totally split them apart. So, like, for any parents listening, if you're intervening in your kid's love life, just know you are creating literary masterpieces. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson five. You can like two things. So, this is a short one. I just mean, you can like both movies. It's bizarre to me. To me, it's just, it's too easy of a thing to compare one movie against the other one. You just tell me why you like a movie or not, but you don't have to, I mean, like, Three or four years of work were put into each of these things. It just seems like such a a cheap shortcut to say, I like the first one better. To me, they both are wonderfully cast and they're, um, they're wonderfully done. There, there are moments in the book that are highlighted in each of them, but I mean, it's okay to like two, you can, (laughs) it's okay. Like this isn't Backstreet Boys and In (laughs) Sync. Okay. So I, I don't think I've told this In Sync Backstreet Boys story before, but apparently, Backstreet Boys was assembled by this guy who essentially acted like their manager. He was almost kind of this like father figure to them. He helped shepherd them to fame. And InSync crops up and Backstreet Boys, they're all worried. They're like, crap, these guys are a competition. And the guy's like, no, it's going to be fine. And then InSync kind of eclipses Backstreet Boys. And they don't find out for a while that the same guy founded InSync without <laughs> telling them. He like went behind their back. So these people go and interview the guy and he's like, Everywhere there's McDonald's, there's Burger King. I might as well own Burger King, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's room enough for everyone. That's what that's what's crazy to me is that I love Coke and Pepsi, but you can't say that to most people because for <laughs> some reason they want to be on a team. And sure. I don't get it because if you – and I'm going to get flack for this – 
They taste like 20% different. They're both cola products, right? <laughs> sure. People argue about which one is sweeter and whether that's good or not, as if they're not just both poison in the first <laughs> place. But when you tell people like, oh, it's basically like Pepsi, they act like you're saying that it's the choice between orange juice and poop. <laughs> like, they are so similar. And is it okay if I like both? Like, is that okay if I, can I have your permission? <laughs> but you just think on how many of those things that there are, like, what's the best Back to the Future movie? What's the best Toy Story? It's okay to like more than one or to not rank them against each other. I feel that way. So I, I love the NBA and I describe myself as a passionate bandwagon fan. And people get really upset about that. They're like, so when a team stops being good, you stop liking them? And I'm like, yeah, because they, they stopped being good. <laughs> The people who hate sports bandwagon fans, imagine them applying that to anything else where it's like, this is my drinking water tap, and I drink this when it's muddy, and I drink it when it's clear. <laughs> well, that's what I think is funny, yeah, is that for some reason there is like this satisfaction when a team of yours wins a championship when they've lost for the last seven years. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. If If anything, it's just... It's rewarding patience, but it's weird to then look down on someone who's like, oh, you only started rooting for them this year? <laughs> I wasted a decade. <laughs> That's like to me, like I don't follow sports, but fantasy sports makes more sense to me. Being a fan of individuals, because those sure. people don't care. None of these athletes grew up in this city that you right. live in. You're rooting for this team. They never have lived here, uh -huh. and they're going to move to a city you hate if they offer them more money. Or the thing that happens to you will be what happened to the Warriors, where Oakland stuck with this terrible team for 40 years, and then they got good and moved to San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> I was driving through Vegas recently, and I saw that the name of the Raiders Stadium is uh, Allegiant Airlines. Mm -hmm. And at first, I was like, well, if anything to me, like, that doesn't build up Allegiant's brand. It just <laughs> <laughs> it makes me think less of this billion-dollar structure. I was puzzling over it, but then I realized, how else are Raiders fans going to afford to fly to see their team? <laughs> How else is the Raiders team going to be able to afford to fly? <laughs> we go from talking about a Jane Austen novel oh, to yeah. a good Raiders burn. <laughs> well, I guess it's all in the same vein, because that was a pretty elitist joke of me to make. <laughs> Raiders fans are poor. A Raiders fan should never arouse my curiosity. <laughs> He would be as much above my notice as below it. <laughs> Emma is like if you were able to distill gossip down into a book. <laughs> All right, random facts. So she's so good at capturing these little relatable moments. There's this part where Mr. Woodhouse is criticizing his son-in-law and he's saying, you know, my, my friend Mr. Perry thinks you should do this plan and you should do that. And his son-in-law is like, well, Mr. Perry can keep his opinions to himself. And it says, <laughs> Mr. Woodhouse was rather agitated by such harsh reflections on his friend Perry, to whom he had, in fact, though unconsciously, been attributing many of his own feelings and expressions. <laughs> So one thing that I liked about the 2020 movie that it has that the book doesn't is Mr. Knightley's naked butt. <laughs> Every time I read a period piece book, I'm always wondering what his butt looks like. <laughs> right. 
Well, it's exactly how I was picturing it. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because I love how the movie was shot and edited. It's so much fun. But this choice is, I still don't understand it. Like, <laughs> what is this supposed to, what is this showing us? I know that his like footman is helping him get dressed. I don't get why <laughs> we have to see him <laughs> naked for like two seconds. So there's a great line that Mr. Knightley says to Emma. He says, if I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more. And it's the most beautiful line in the book. Mm. But also, for any men listening, this line is a great way for you to get out of being vulnerable. <laughs> so we're, we're talking about honesty and how most people aren't in this book. And I think that this whole story, it takes place over the course of like a year, but it could have happened within the space of a day's time if everyone would just communicate with each other. <laughs> so here's how I think it could have gone. I rewrote the book as a 30-second stage play. <clears throat> Harriet, I like Mr. Martin. Emma, you should like Mr. Elton. Harriet, I should like Mr. Elton. Mr. Elton, I like you, Emma. Emma. Don't you mean Harriet? Mr. Elton. Nope, I don't care if she's dead or alive. <laughs> That's a direct quote. Emma. Harriet, sorry about the whole Mr. Elton thing. Harriet. It's okay, I like someone else now. Emma. Mr. Churchill, right? Sorry, he likes me. Mr. Churchill. Actually, I like Jane Fairfax. Harriet. No, I like Mr. Knightley, and I think he likes me. Mr. Knightley. I don't. I like Emma. Harriet. I like Mr. Martin. <laughs> A good question for any author is, would my plot entirely go away if Tinder existed? <laughs> but isn't it crazy that so much of the story is people just not saying right. to each other what they mean? <laughs> they think they're on the same page and they are totally miscommunicating. It makes you really understand why the Brits ended up just conquering everyone they ever met. <laughs> <laughs> they probably thought they were on the same page. <laughs> So in Yes, Please, we talked about how people are always pitching us comedy ideas, and a lot of them aren't great. And Jane Austen did what we should probably do, which is this snooty guy pitched her a book idea, so she actually wrote it out in order to mock it. <laughs> Have you heard of this? No. It's called Plan of a Novel According to Hints from Various Quarters. <laughs> so here, here are some of the highlights. It's a full outline. <clears throat> Heroine perfectly good, with much tenderness and sentiment, and not the least wit. <laughs> Wherever she goes, she receives offers of marriage, which she refers wholly to her father, exceedingly angry that he should not be first applied to. <laughs> the father at his daughter's earnest request to relate to her the past events of his life. This will be the greatest part of the first volume. <laughs> the poor father, finding his end approaching, and after four or five hours of tender advice, expires in a fine burst of literary enthusiasm. <laughs> So, Dave, have you ever been set up? My longest relationship was actually the result of a setup. Oh, okay. Uh, a coworker had been trying to set me up with his sister, and I was I wasn't really feeling it because setups don't often go very well. Right. And then I bumped into her at another function. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so the next time he brought it up, I was like, yeah, I could be persuaded. <laughs> I was set. Up, I've been set up twice. The first time it was a comic from the Bay Area that I knew him and his wife thought it would be so cute if I went on a double date with them and their friend. And she was feeling it and I wasn't. So I never called her back. And it ended my friendship with all three of them. <laughs> 
which I think <laughs> is the ultimate danger of setting anyone up. Um, the other time I was set up, my sister set me up with a woman, um, and I married her. <laughs> so pretty dichotomous outcomes. <laughs> so that one worked out. Unbeknownst to you, the stakes could never have been higher for either of those dates. <laughs> It's like you have a certain number of friends or people in your life, and every setup date is like a, okay, double or nothing. (laughs) So have you noticed that during these sort of Regency-era movies, there's always at least one scene with dancing? Mm -hmm. And when two characters are talking during a dance, they are the only people at the (laughs) dance talking. Sure. I imagine that there's a dancing scene in every Jane Austen movie because it's one of the only times they're allowed to touch. (laughs) (laughs) I love Mr. Woodhouse, Emma's dad. He's a hypochondriac who doesn't like change, which I imagine most hypochondriacs don't. (laughs) Uh, To me, he serves as one of the reasons for us to believe that Emma will never marry because he needs her there. Right. Um, And I forget the name of the actor. Who's the guy who plays uh, Dr. Octopus in Pirates of the Caribbean? (laughs) (laughs) Jeffrey Rush? Davy Jones. Oh. Oh, Bill Nye. I don't know how to say it. If it's Nye. Bill Nye. He does such a great job as as her father. I think it's Bill Nye, the science guy. (laughs) (laughs) So here, here are a few of my favorite quotes of his from the book. The sea is rarely of use to anybody. It nearly killed me once. (laughs) (laughs) That is very kind of you, Mr. Knightley. I'm afraid you must have had a shocking walk. He's always very concerned about how dirty the walk is. <laughs> South End is an unhealthy place. And then I love that the narrator says, The wedding cake, which had been a great distress to him, had been all eaten up. What was unwholesome to him, he regarded as unfit for anybody. <laughs> which is like when Dave makes me feel guilty for eating a steak. <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Emma. One, smart arguments can move a story. Two, beware of confirmation bias. Three, compelling doesn't have to mean likable. Four, use the Emma playbook when you need to break up your friend's engagement. Five, you can like two things. And six, if you're confused about who you might be in love with, it just might be that brother-in-law of yours who's 17 years older. (laughs) 